Okay, so when we initially started doing research on uh, cases of satanic abuse or, sat- uh, you know, of cases... Satanic ritual abuse or just satanic panic-related yeah. cases. Yeah. Yeah. We, you know, we found the big ones that just popped up in a quick Google search. The most common ones that pop up are Martinsville, the West Memphis Three, and then the McMartin case in... Mc- California. Yep. I mean, it's, it's interesting because yeah, we did all this research for those cases, right. When we talked to David, but after we spoke to David, right. After we recorded with David, it was weird because I I think, I think maybe we were searching for diversity in those cases. Yeah. Like small town. Yeah. Uh, So, so these cases had a small town feel to it. Yeah, very much was, so. Mm-hmm. So it's like everybody in in the town knew who these people were, knew who the victims were, and that's how things also just kind of spiraled out of control. Yeah, I mean these cases made national news, and there, I mean obviously there's also in, it, also international cases as well, right? There's plenty of cases in Australia and in the UK, but doing research and we, you know one of the cases that seemed to be pretty big but did not show up in initial research was the case of the San Antonio 4. Yeah, and I think that really shocked us because now that I even think about it, I don't know how I came across that case. I just started looking and then I just kept looking and searching and then one day it just popped up out of nowhere and This was the first time I had heard about multiple perpetrators, like four women who were lesbian and also Latina women in a major city, San Antonio. And that's how we just learned more about this case and realized that why was this not as publicized as the West Memphis Three or the McMartin case? I feel like in some way it's it's possible that the charges against the San Antonio Four seem to be more plausible just due to homophobia and sexism. I mean, that, that's just the way that I, 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 that's the only thing I can think of, right? Or, I mean, also, I guess, a racial bias, right? An, an ethnic bias. They don't fit into that same neat little mold that most of the other cases do, right? It's not a small town. I mean, right, that's a major city in Texas. And once again, these aren't for white women, right, or for white men. These are for Latina women who happen to be lesbians. Yeah, it wasn't that stereotypical profile of what a satanic ritual abuse cases and i don't know if it had also to do with the exonerations of these women that people didn't want to admit it was just really shocking that we had to dig and research so much and i'm not saying like extra 10 minutes or extra 15 minutes we were doing this we were looking almost every single day for a week or so. 
Yeah, I mean, that's how we came across the documentary Southwest of Salem, you know, from doing deeper research. And honestly, any other documentary I'd seen or any other podcast I listened to about any other case, yeah, I mean, they were they went into great detail, but I watching this documentary was just, it was very eye-opening. It was very different. This documentary was really what I think triggered or really brought their case to national attention. I mean, this is a pretty big thing. It was a pretty big thing. It's a very serious thing because of the charges that were brought against these four individuals. And I wonder if it's because the victims in this case were not killed, if that made a difference in how people talked about the case or how people talked about the abuse that was going on. Like the West Memphis Three, right? The boys had died. Right. But I mean, if you look at Martinsville, you know, or McMartin case, no one died. That's true. So it's, I it's, mean, it's true. Yeah, it's 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 not I don't think it's about a death, you know, in the case. Right? I don't think it's about a homicide. I think. I really think it 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 goes deeper. I think it's just really about. You know, we look at these women and we see one thing, right? We see something different than what we, than, I don't want to say we, right? The general public or the media, right? It's mainly about the media because that's where you hear about these cases, right? So they're looking at these women like, okay, well, maybe they actually did do it. Maybe that's real. And they're looking at other cases and saying, like, you know, they're reflecting on them and saying, no, maybe that didn't happen. I guess we need to be honest, right? We need to be candid about this which is we're talking about when we're talking about white children right or white women the media jumps all over right oh my god what happened you know we have to figure it out we have to solve the case who did it there's a lot of attention right there's a lot more interest in it these innocent children Oh no, they've been abused by this this satanic cult. As to where we have four Latino women, it's one of those things where the media just maybe looks at it and and sees it differently because of who they are. Yeah, four Latina women where the victims were also Latina. Correct. So I, I really do think that that makes a difference. Yeah, I think just flat out race and sexual orientation played a huge role in how this case was portrayed or how this case was not portrayed to the public. So we reached out to Anna Vasquez, one of the original San Antonio Four. Anna currently works as the Outreach and Education Director at the Innocence Project of Texas. So Anna, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us. You know, for us, you know, we want we wanted to talk about your story and also um, what you're up to currently because one, I think it's really important that people know about your story, but also how life is for people who have left prison and mm-hmm. um, how it's not very, it, it, you know, it's not it's not all hunky dory, even for people who have been exonerated. 
And so, you know, just to go back a bit, could you tell us what happened in the summer, in the summer of 1994? Um, Wow. Uh, Really absolutely nothing where this could have stemmed from, should I say that? But yeah, in the summer of 1994, um, so there was three others involved in my case. And lit, it's so it's Elizabeth Ramirez, Cassie, uh, Cassandra Rivera, and Christy Mayhew. And Cassie and I were in a relationship and Liz was somebody that I grew up with who had been in a relationship with uh, one of my best friends growing up. So back in 1994, you know, the time of being out as a lesbian and in a relationship, it was not accepted like it is today. It's more accepting now, even though, you know, we still have a long way to go. Right. But it was worse, you know, back then. And it wasn't something where I was comfortable being out in public. So I really was just out to them, to be honest with you. And it was almost like a safe space where I could be myself. And um, during the summer of 1994, Liz um, had been in a rollover accident, pretty serious to where, you know, she was having to take time off of work. So in comes her two nieces. And really, I mean, you know, there were seven and nine at the time. So not a lot like go uh, grocery shopping, but it was more for company and just to keep an eye out for her. So it was nothing out of the ordinary. Um, Like I said, I was there to visit at times. There was claims that, you know, I lived there at the apartment, which was not true. But I did visit, you know, there, I have never denied being there to visit, but what we were accused of was um, sexually assaulting her two little nieces um, during this week in the summer of 1994, which was completely false. And um, like I said, there wasn't anything that I can think of or even know that, you know, nothing could have been perceived in a, in the wrong way. The way that I felt was I wasn't out. So I was very private and, you know, especially to have children around that is definitely not appropriate. So that was something that I was very mindful of. And to top it all off, Cassie had two small children as well, which you never heard about throughout this case, really, that they were even around but they were constantly around. So during that summer, it was actually four children. And, you know, Liz is so family oriented that she had neighbors um, in this, within this apartment that, you know, he was a single father. And so the father worked all the time. And during the summer, the children were home. So it was like an open door. You know, Liz's apartment was like an open door to where her neighbors could come over, you know, and watch TV that used to, were her neighbors. And they would, like I said, um, it, it was almost like Liz kept an eye out without really keeping an eye out, should I say, because there were older children. You, you know, they were basically in their own apartment, but they would 
come over frequently, you know. So how this all came about, I mean, I was just as shocked as anybody could be that had no clue that this was even something that people could have thought could have happened. How old were you, Anna? Um, During 1994, I was uh, 19 years old. So that's a crucial time in your life. Yeah. You know, I graduated at the age of 17. Graduation was maybe like 20 days before my 18th birthday. Right. But, you know, nonetheless, I was still 17 when I graduated. So, yeah, 19 years old. I I look at the kids now that I I go and speak to at, at universities. And yeah, I mean, they're so young. Right. Like you're just getting your feet wet to, you know, make a name for yourself and. I, you know, I, during that time, I just wasn't able to have that opportunity because of all this. I mean, my name was ruined, you know, basically because the the summer of 1994 and then the accusations came in like September, you know, and then I was ultimately um, charged in 1995. How did your family, I mean, react to the accusations? Did they support you? Did the people around you support you, the neighborhood? How did people take the the news and the accusations? You know, uh, so yeah, um, I didn't really get too much of a reaction to my from my neighbors, but you know, everybody that knew me knew that I wasn't capable of doing something like this, right? Right. And at the time, to be completely honest with you, when I was approached by Detective Majeka, I had this mind frame that this isn't right. I can handle it, and I really against my better judgment and and what people were telling me to do was get an attorney and my mom wanted to go in and and talk to uh Javier which is the little girl's um father and the detectives but I was like mom I can handle this not knowing that 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 was the worst mistake that I ever could have made I should have got an attorney you know right off the bat and I didn't and you know truth be told most people that are innocent don't, right? And, and even to this day, I, I watch a lot of the news and a lot of um, these cases that are coming out. And it's funny how people always say the same thing. Well, if you have nothing to hide, why are you going to get an attorney? Well, yeah, that looks horrible for somebody that has no idea how wrong things can turn so quickly. Um, you just wouldn't say that like now. I mean, that's the worst thing that that somebody could say because it, no, it's not that, you know, it's just that they have a way of asking you questions where they can twist and turn your, your words around where an attorney knows how to handle that, you know, that they're there to protect you and protect your rights and to do what's right or the best interest, you know, for their client. And I just, not that I, I'm, I'm going to say that I thought I knew it all, but I really believe that being completely honest and helping in the investigation and doing what I was supposed to, respecting authority that everything would work out, and it didn't. And, you know, I don't know if that was a thing you thought you could do because you were young, but I know older people who have the same idea that, you know, good things do end up happening to good people. So if I just tell the truth, I'll be fine because I have nothing to hide and justice will prevail. But the justice system is 
messed up. Right. And I, and I think from the very get go, they just had it set in stone that we were the ones that did this horrific crime to um, Liz's, you know, the, her nieces. And um, it, it's almost like they didn't do any kind of other investigating, you know, into what's going on. And to top it all off, the detective that was doing the investigation was homicide. He wasn't even trained to deal with these types of cases. You know, from my understanding, there is training when it comes to it. I think it's like a a family violence or something like that. But they're trained a different way than just a homicide detective. Yeah, sex crimes are completely different. That's kind of strange then. That's very strange to just have a homicide detective handle that case. Oh, well, the ones that handle crimes like the way we we were accused of supposedly was on vacation uh, <laughs> really wow that's that couldn't what wait was wow. yeah that's what was told to me so after the case and and everything i guess i'm really curious to know about that the moment that you realized that things were going south this this isn't going where we want it to go and how did you adjust to that mentally you know like i mean how was that that just transition from like we're innocent we obviously we didn't do this to oh crap this is it's over right you know i think what really when it really came down to it so we we had a week-long trial and the jurors were sequestered friday evening and we come back saturday morning and it's um valentine's day actually and um you know, we went to the courtroom. Uh, they weren't there yet. The jurors weren't there yet. They weren't ready to start court process. So me and, and a couple of my family members went downstairs to grab a soda until we heard that they were back in and, and whatnot. So as soon as I got off of that elevator, uh, we were told that they had a verdict. So one, that was a clear sign that, uh-oh. And one thing that I'll never forget is that my attorney told me, try to look at the jurors. And if they make eye contact with you, then it's in your favor. And if they don't, it's not. And wouldn't you know it, not one juror looked at me, you know, dead in my eye or anything. It's just like they, they couldn't look me in my eyes. So that was the second one. And then the third one was when they read the verdict that it was guilty. Yeah. You know, going from being hopeful, really thinking that, okay, these people are really going to see that there was no possible way that all four of us could have done these horrible things, you know, to these children. We had jobs. There was no way that we were in that type of time frame. Okay. We're talking about minutes where we, you know, zoom in, zoom out. And that's basically how it was with time records to prove this. But, you know, it, it didn't matter. It, it, I think what happened was that when you have a quote unquote expert witness stating that there is signs of a sexual assault, that really when it comes to children, I mean, everybody yeah. is a little bit more sensitive to that, you know, and, and uh, I can see it. I see why, you know, I understand it because there are real victims, 
But unfortunately, in our case, that that just wasn't the truth. That is not what happened. This was a conviction without a crime. This was something completely made up. And it and I went to prison for it for many years. Do you ever think about why me? I did, but I got past that years later. Yeah. You know, speaking, I can't speak for the others, but you know, yeah. Why me? Why, why is this happening? How, how could this happen was more, not so much why me, but how could something like this happen? You know, I I really believe in the system. I really believe that people that were going to prison, it's because they were guilty. I, I never knew that there was a gray area, right? I mean, I always thought it was just black and white. You know, they got it right. They're going to prison. And and that's the end. That's the ending to it. But I learned very quickly that that's just not the truth. You know, that's that's far from the truth. So it wasn't so much a why me, but just how could it happen? I just I couldn't believe it. But nonetheless, I it did take a couple of years to get over that, you know, because at that particular point, after, you know, a couple of years into my incarceration, after reaching out to different organizations to try to get help improving my innocence and getting rejection letters after one after another, it was, okay, this is going to be my life for the next 15 years. Now, when I get out, I plan to continue fighting for my innocence. But at this particular time, I really had to conform to my surroundings, to, to prison, to prison life and just get over, like, this is my life. You know, it's nothing's happening, all rejection letters, you know, so it was, it was disappointing, but at the same time, it almost became survival mode. So, you know, but yeah, I mean, my complete way of thinking changed. Why do you think um, you got so many rejections? Uh, uh, you know, I don't. I don't know much about the process of. of um, okay. Well, there was only there. There was very limited uh, organizations that were in the law library books that you could write to. Right. So some of them were okay. You're not. You know, in our part of Texas, or we don't take okay. these types of uh, convictions. Only if you have DNA. Well, as a woman, wow. you don't have yeah. you know yep. that exactly. DNA so it was a lot harder to prove my innocence and a lot of the time it said you have no new evidence to present well hell i'm in prison isn't that supposed to be your job to you know to do that for you know to help someone how you know i just i thought that was the worst thing that they could have uh, sent to somebody and at the time when I was uh, sent to prison, Innocence Project of Texas was not on the books yet. You know, they, they didn't come in to be an organization until uh, 2006. Also, they were founded later. Yes, wow. they were founded later. The work that you do right now <laughs> with the Innocence Project of Texas, can mm-hmm. you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I'm their outreach and education director. And basically what I do is is, um, tell my story and try to talk about wrongful convictions and how somebody could get, you know, wrapped up so easily. And, you know, just basically trying to educate people to be smart, to be, you know, uh, aware of their surroundings, know your rights, 
you know, lawyer up things that I wish there was somebody back then to tell me, because I'm sure that, you know, if I had a speaker coming into a classroom, right, that I was in, I would somehow remember this if I was in this situation. And, you know, it just never was there. But there are a lot of people that are unaware or don't really think that it could happen to them. You know, so I, I really want them to be mindful that even the smallest decision could change their life forever. For example, myself, you know, you know, being a, being a part of the investigation, helping and being in the lineup and doing a polygraph, it was the worst thing I could have done. I mean, and you just wouldn't think that that could be used against you, but it was, you know, it was, it was horrible and it, it just didn't make any sense to me. So I really want them to be aware that they do have a right to not speak to them. Yes, they're going to threaten you. Yes, they're going to scare you and throw up the, well, what do you have to hide? But you are afforded that, you know, that right. And um, they really need to take heed to that. There's just a lot of things that these kids are doing nowadays that they don't realize. For example, in, in a lot of the high schools, I'm hearing more and more how they're taking naked pics of themselves and sending them, well, they're not realizing that they could be brought up on charges for that. And, you know, once that is out there, I mean, it could ruin somebody's life or their own. Just the fact that you're saying this, I didn't know that. Like sending it to, oh, you mean sending it to anyone or just a specific? Anyone, if they're, if they're minors, that's the problem. Yes. So it doesn't even matter if they're sending it to another minor. Like it's. Yes, that's right. It doesn't matter if you're sending it to another minor. I just assumed that like 17 year olds were sexting. So that is a crime. That's the word. Sexting. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Yeah, it's happening, but they don't realize the consequences behind that. Say, say a parent picks up their phone and sees this. Yeah. That's something that is between them. So they really shouldn't be doing that stuff. And they are so amazed to hear this, that. So it, it's just, you know, really scary that they just are not really paying attention. Like all teenagers, right? I was doing right. the same thing. I wasn't, you know, paying attention to the laws or anything like that. But I think there has to be somebody that is making them aware of it before yeah. they're doing this and getting caught up. Right. So that, that's why I feel like it's so important, not only to tell them about what happened to me, and but going further than that. So it just depends on the audience, right? Like, you know, if I'm talking to uh, defense attorneys, uh, continued learning education for them, well, then it's my story and whatnot, right? But if I'm in high schools or, you know, universities that are freshmen, sophomores, they need to be aware of some of the things that, you know, a lot of people don't pay attention to. What's your yeah. uh, favorite audience? High schools. I knew it. <laughs> I love high schools. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're they are so wow. They're I mean, I just I'm amazed because I, I think about when I was in high school and and you know the classes that they're taking, some of them are forensics or dealing with uh criminal justice already in high wow. school. So it's just it's, yeah, it's I great. didn't have that in high school. You know, yeah, no, I mean I wish I did, no. but uh yeah, it's amazing to see how far we've come and wow, you know, for our young adults. Kids are just getting smarter. And wow, what was I doing in high school? Not much. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. 
So, yeah, you talked to high schoolers. You said you talked to defense attorneys. Um, is there any other particular groups that you, that you educate and reach out to? Church groups, even police officers association, you know, I'm a part of the San Antonio Crime Coalition, which tries to bridge that gap with like the neighborhood and police officers, because, you know, there, there's been a lot of tension surrounding that. And it's almost like they think it's a good guy, bad guy type deal. Same thing with prosecutors and defense attorneys. Same thing. It's not in a, a good and a bad. You know, I am all for when I talk to some of the universities that are in law school, the kids that are in law school, um, you know, not everybody can go right into defense work. Right. They always start at the state level unless you know somebody that knows somebody that can get in there. So a lot of them, you know, start off as, as prosecutors, which is fine. That's fantastic because now they are going in with an open mind to this and, and seeing that they're aware that, you know, wrongful convictions happen and to do their due diligence and investigating, right? It's not about how many convictions they can get under their belt. It's about truth and justice. You know, that's, that's what they're supposed to be working towards. And that's what I try to preach to these guys, you know, so it's okay. Prosecution or defense, because there's, there's good guys on both sides. There's, there's good and bad in every type of whether you're a police officer, whether you're a prosecutor, defense attorney, so on and so forth. It's just that what I ask them to do is just do your job. Remember why you went into this field. And that's basically all I can ask for. How did you begin to work for the Innocence Project of Texas? So um, I've been there probably about four going on five years. And I think what started it, I'm not completely sure. I'm sure you'd have to um, ask our ED, our executive director. But what I think took place was that right before we were actually exonerated, we were touring a lot with our documentary, Southwest of Salem. And we were doing a lot of film festivals and, you know, just a lot of touring, let's just say. And during that time, started to become a better speaker, right? Every time that you talk, you get better, right? And it's a continuous thing. And prior to this, you know, once I was released and my three other friends were still in prison, I was like their voice. And that was something that I promised myself to do that it it didn't feel right that they weren't out. And I had to keep the story alive. I had to keep it, you know, moving. And I think that, you know, that's where they saw my motivation, me speaking better, and just being someone that can speak for the organization and wrongful convictions. So that, that's how I feel like they asked me to become part of their staff. You were your own biggest advocate, and you were Cassie, Christy, and Liz's biggest advocate, too. Had to. I had to, right? Because I always said, who, who, who can fight better for you than you? So I had to. And, and, you know, and I go back to when I was going to trial and really depending on my defense attorney, right, to do his job, to do what was the best thing for me. And I wouldn't ask questions. You know, I, I wouldn't, you know, push him to do this and ask this and, and whatnot. And, 
that's where I feel like I failed myself. And that wasn't going to happen again. Because still, even after all that time, our life was on the line. Even if I had to go back to prison, you know, if I lost, I would have only had to do maybe two and a half more years. But Liz, Liz would have been in there for another 20 plus years. And that's what motivation, it was motivation. It really was. And it was motivation, determination. And I just had to prove my innocence. It was your life. So, yes, absolutely. I mean, yeah, you put a lot of trust in, you know, your attorneys and it, it just did not work out in your favor. If you weren't doing outreach and education about your story for the Innocent Project of Texas, what would you be doing? Yeah, you know, that's that's a good one. I don't even know if I thought about anything else, but I will tell you this. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do want to go back to school and become an, an investigator. So I'm going to hide in people's bushes and stuff like that. You know? <laughs> what? Pick up people's water bottles and cigarette butts and all that, you know? You want this recorded, I mean, really, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I would really like to do do something like that. Um, so, so like a private I, investigator? Yeah. I mean, that yeah. sounds like fun, to be honest. You know what you're mostly going to be, end, uh, they mostly end up checking out like cheating spouses and stuff. Yeah, but I don't want to do that. That, yeah. that doesn't sound exciting, honestly. I knew, uh, and yeah, I knew a private investigator, and he's like, "Yeah, this is this is what most people call them for." Yeah, yeah, yeah true, true. But um, honestly, so I've kind of looked into it, and it says um, for Texas that if you have an organization that backs you, that you can basically work for them. So that's what I'm kind of nice. hoping for. But, you know, we'll see. We'll see. I'm just not ready to give this up yet. Yeah. yeah. Maybe someday. But, you know, when there's somebody else that's going to take the baton, but I'm, I'm just not ready right now. As, as stressful as it is, as it's a huge reminder, right? When we, when I talk to the clients that are in that transition, right? They're, they're out of prison, but they're not exonerated. You know, it's, so it's somewhere that I've been and it brings up a lot of memories, you know, but at the same time, I wish there was somebody that was out there for me during my transition because it's tough. It's tough. I mean, it's tough now, you know, and I've been out of prison for many years, but it's almost like you're constantly working at it, right? It's almost like you're like, what do they say? Uh, addiction working, right? And, and it's kind of the same thing being an exoneree, somebody that's been not an exonerate, a free person, because uh, not everybody is exonerated. But it, it's really hard to readjust, right? To adjust to the normal life that we we all know to transform into this inmate in the prison world and then having to transform again. It's just, it, it's a lot. And, you know, honestly, there's, I have a lot of trust issues. I don't communicate. I shut down, you know, and I'll walk off or whatever. And that's, that's really not very good in my relationship, you know? So there's a lot of things that I have become after being in prison, a survivalist, right? I mean, I'm just, so it's, it's just a lot of things. And I think a lot of people's perception is that, you know, you're out, you're free, you should be ecstatic. And and mind you, I am, I'm very grateful for 
where I am today, but it, it's, there's still scars. There's still a lot of healing that I need to do. And not just me, but many people, many people. You're grateful, but then at the same time, it's something that shouldn't have happened. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're you're absolutely right. It, it shouldn't have. It shouldn't have. So the do I know that the justice uh, system failed me? Yes, I do. Absolutely. I can't I can't focus on that though. I, I feel like that's kind of a negative. Being grateful and thankful for for what I do have because I know others that have not been. Forget the compensation, right? Forget that. That's that's never going to be enough for, right. for anyone. But just to be proven actually innocent, that's huge. Where there's free people all over the place that I know, and they're still, quote unquote, a convicted felon. And they haven't been given that privilege to go to any apartment and fill out an application and get in or go to any job and it not come up. So there's just so many things that, yeah, I'm, I am one of the lucky ones. I, I know it and I will say it. So that whole process of you know, being released and exonerated, obviously, like you said, not everybody is exonerated, but how is that transition? What are the resources that were available to you if there were any at the time? And, and are, what resources are available now for people? None and none. So wow. there, there's so the transition between when you're released from from prison due to new evidence, you don't fall under the category of probation or parole. So those services are not there. And if you read the the Texas law books, supposedly there is something set in stone for people during that transition phase. But no one, I mean, who in the hell is going to get out of prison? And then go to this, you know, state of Texas office and want their help. It's just not possible. So with the Innocence Project of Texas, that's what we kind of started, the transition committee that I'm a part of. So we have contacts, you know, here and there. Mind you, it's the state of Texas and people go all over. So we do what we can. You know, uh, sometimes we'll have a a wish list. And I'm not talking about uh, they want leather boots or, or something like that. Right? We're talking about, right. you know, they, they need certain items. They need, say, say a phone, but we have to be careful on, well, are they going to be a registered sex offender? If that's the case, then we need to know what to get them. Clothing, groceries, uh, you know, things of that nature. Trying to get them hooked up with some kind of church to help them, you know, in their recovery or what have you. So that's what we try to do, but we're also learning and reaching out to other organizations to see how they can help. Yeah, it's just, uh, it's kind of touch and go. It just depends on the client. We don't have clients that come out every day or even every year, right? I mean, there's just, so there's a whole bunch of maybes. We'll see. It depends. So it's just something that we have to continue to work on, but it's very important to me because we did have a client that came out, was released on bond for new evidence and no resources. And um, he went back to what he knew and I was selling drugs wow. and he went back in. So it, it's just, I mean, that's where a lot of the recidivism comes into, 
right? Because there's not a lot of these resources that people can go to. And yes, they may be there, but I even tried going to some some of these uh, resources that I found through the state. Not that personally what they have on the books now, but yeah, I did try to find some resources that that were helpful. The only thing that I came upon was um, food stamps, emergency food stamps, and healthcare through the state. And, and that was basically it. It wasn't very much. That's not and, enough. No, it's not. And also yeah, another thing that us coming out of prison, we think we're going to hit the ground running, right? And it's not that easy. You know, we hit a lot of roadblocks. We still have to get, you know, identification, social security. Some people don't have any of this. And, you know, they have to, we, we have to figure that out for them before they can even get a job. So it's, it's not, you know, it's a little bit frustrating for them, especially when they have that mindset that I'm going to, I'm going to get a job, I'm going to get my place, you know, and, and so on and so forth. And there are just so many things that could happen that they're not aware of how, you know, hard it could be. Do you feel like you're changing lives with the work you're doing? With our clients or with the students or people that I'm talking to? Everything. I hope so. I, I really hope so. I, even if they can take a, a, a small amount of what I, you know, talk to them about. I hope so. I hope I can call, you know, one of our clients and, and encourage them to not give up and, and you know, don't get discouraged and, and don't take things so hard and be prepared to fall, but we're going to pick ourselves up, right? We all fall. We all have bad days. I should have had one today, but I think the main thing is to, to remember that it's okay. Like we're going to have to pick ourselves back up, you know, dust ourselves off and, and, and move forward. So I really do hope that I am making a difference in people's lives. It's interesting because there's a study that's been done on like what what is the main indicator of success, especially like in the workforce? And a big part of that is grit. And you just you just seem to have a lot of it. I, I don't know if this is something you've had as a child or being able to speak. No, I mean having that grit, resilience. Grit. Define grit. Grit of resilience, like, perseverance. Like perseverance, yeah. Just not giving up. I don't know. I guess I wasn't really like pushed to that yet. Like how I got through prison, I have no idea, you know, but I just knew that I wasn't going to let the way they portrayed me was the worst person that was out there. Right. And I was horrible and I just wasn't going to let them win. I wasn't going to do things to, for them to say, Oh yeah, see, you know, look at her prison record or what have you. I mean, I was like a model prisoner in there, right? Like I just did my time. I didn't get into, you know, confrontations. I always stayed away from the things that I shouldn't be involved in that can get you caught up real easily. And I just tried to be kind and mindful and respectful to others and mind my own business, right? I have enough problems of my own to get into somebody else's business. So I just kind of kept to myself. So but growing up, I don't think I really ever went through something where I realized that I had that in me. So I really can't tell you, but when I think about prison, I made it. I didn't let it 
get the best of me. It takes a lot of strength, honestly, to um, to withstand that. It really does. I consider you consider you to be a very strong person. I don't know. Like I say that I don't know if I could do it, but I mean, you never know. But it's that's a rough yeah. situation. To, to right. You're with. exactly right because I I right. didn't know. Yeah. You know, I I could never see foresee that even happening yeah. in my life. Right. Like never did I ever think that I would go to prison. Yeah. And uh, I always uh, say that you never know what's in you until you're pushed up against a wall. And you have to. That's the way I look at it. You know, you talking about your story can bring up a lot of memories. And for some people, and maybe for you, it's cathartic. But also, how do you deal with it? Do you have a therapist? No. What? <laughs> I was actually going to ask that. How is that possible, Anna? I hear it. I hear all about it too. Believe me. I mean, I, I remember going into this uh, into this university, and it was predominantly white, upper class. I told my story, and these two little girls came out, right, real real young, right, and and they asked me about having a therapist. And, you know, they were just so gun ho and, oh, I've had one since 13 and I love her. And it, it was just like, like, and, and she's like, and I've never been through anything even remotely close to what you've been through. And I have a therapist. So yeah, it's, it's come up a time or two, but so I will tell you that there was a, a therapist that was trying to get involved with exonerees and I had agreed to speak to her and see if like, okay, is there something that you have to add, subtract? So it wasn't, but I talked to her. Anyways, I asked her about that, right? Me talking about what I went through constantly and why can I do that? You know, it it doesn't make sense that, and she says that it's almost routine. And, but I did mention that if you start asking me, how are you doing? Uh, How are you feeling? Other than the story itself, like you're getting personal, that's when I break. So as long as we stay on the story and and I can talk about that top to bottom, right? No problem. But once you start trying to get inside of me and my feelings, my personal space, that's when I break. And I just didn't understand that, but she made sense when it was like, it's, it's routine. You're just, it. It just, I mean, it's just, I can't remember the exact word she said, but it's almost uh, just routine. It's almost like factual, right? I mean, you're not talking about the feelings, I guess, unless you're asked asked about it. And I don't know how often you're asked about feelings. How often am I? Yeah. Yeah. All the time. Okay. Yeah. it, It happens a lot. It happens a lot. And how do you feel about that? Talking about my feelings, again, there goes my survival. I don't like talking about it because I know what's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious to know how you cope with it. And I think telling your story is a way of coping. Yeah, in a sense. So when, when I first started, I mean, even with the documentary, right, speaking about it afterwards, they would have a Q&A all the time. And I could never not cry, right? It didn't matter what you asked it just, just rolled down, right? Tears would just roll down. So it's like, oh, I was a blubbering fool, right? Like you could barely understand me sometimes, right? But 
Yes. So it is kind of therapeutic for me to be able to speak about this and, and move forward. So in a sense, it, it is good. It reminds me a lot of things, brings up a lot of memories, but, you know, I, I think it all, it is, uh, it's almost like a double-edged sword. That's why I think about it. I expect it, you know, there, I mean, I, that's part of my job. I feel like I, I don't want to deny them of anything, I guess, you know, I'll, I'll take it and, you know, talk about it and whatnot. So yeah, doing this job, I kind of know that it, it's part of part of the job, really. You know, and again, I don't want to deny anybody from any information. What is the most surprising thing you've learned about yourself or about exonerees or exoneration? About myself, I would say that I never knew being a public speaker was something that I could do, especially like if you ever saw the documentary. Southwest Salem, and we're on stage. Cassie was the talker, right? And I was just kind of there in the background. So I wasn't one to speak or wanted to be seen or anything like that. So I really never thought that it was something that was in me. Exonerations, that happens few and far between. And exonerees, where it comes to exonerees, it's it's almost like I don't know. It's the weirdest thing, but we all describe the same type of feelings. It's odd, but it's like if you hear one exoneree story, you hear, let, let's stop calling them exonerees. It's freed people. I got to be mindful of that. But freed people, it's almost like we have each gone through or felt what the other one has. So in my opinion, if you hear one freed person's story, it's almost identical besides, you know, the crime or what you were accused of. So it's just, uh, that's what I've learned that it's all too familiar for all of us. Free people have to share trauma and you can kind of connect the dots because there's a lot of similarities. Right. And it's almost like we have this bond, right? It's hard to describe because I won't say, uh, I haven't met a lot of them, but there are some that I've never met. But yet, when it comes to something, it's almost like we take it to heart. Like if, for example, if Amanda Knox said something to me, I would take it to heart. That's as good as gold. I, I know that she wouldn't lead me in the wrong direction. And I think that goes for a lot of us. Like we trust each other. So it's as good as gold, in, in my opinion. That's the way I see it. I know it speaks volumes if somebody reached out to me and said, Hey, this person is, is a good person and help them out or what have you. And this happens a lot with, when it comes to people that are trying to write a lot of the thesis or doing some kind of therapeutic work or some kind of post-conviction work, they'll help them out in getting people interested. And I know that, okay, this is, this is good. I'll, I'll reach out to them because this person said that so on and so forth. You trust them? Yes, absolutely. Anna, why are you telling us your story? Like, why us? And so it's not because we're funny. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I, I know that you guys are just like starting out. And I'm maybe one of your first. Kind of your, your first. So you're like in the early stages, right? Yep. Well, 
I always think back to our, our director for Southwest of Salem. Yes, she was in the business of doing podcasts and short short films, but you know we were her first full feature documentary, and she did it with such heart and compassion. And the way she told our story was just, in my opinion, it was perfect. You know, she told you a little bit about us, you know, she followed the case, you know, and, and that was over a seven year period. So for her to capture what she did in 91 minutes, I I really was pleased. And so I keep an open mind, right? I mean, who who am I looking for? Diane Sawyer, you know, (laughs) all them. No, I I mean, it, it. Wait, what was the second one you said? Diane Sawyer. No, no, after Diane Sawyer. Oh, I said all them. I, I oh, know. all them. Okay. You know, the, the, you know, the bigger <laughs> I, one. Yeah, you yeah. Know, yep. That really, to me, doesn't, I don't know. It, it's sometimes I feel like, not the beginners, but kind of in the early stages, I feel like there's more of passion. You know, the, the you wanting to tell it the way it really is. And sometimes in the media, you know, yeah, I, I still have to be careful, right? Because you could go way left. But so I've learned that along the way too. But it, it helps to be able to talk to you guys and see where you're coming from and, and hear you out. So I would just try and keep an open mind. I hope that answered your question. It was kind of long-winded, right? No, it, it did. And thanks for keeping an open mind because Zoe and I had talked about your story, it just popped up. I think it should be more well-known because people need to know more about how the criminal justice has failed you all. I think it's safe to say that if you all were white and straight, this most likely would not have happened. You hit the nail on the head. And if we were that same type, we would be in the news more often. Oh, yeah, of course. I believe so. Did I mention this to you about the Gabby and Brian case? Did yeah, I mention this to you? yeah, you did. Yep. Yeah, it's just, you know, same thing. What happened to the, you know, other people that were talking about that have gone missing over there, the lesbian couple that, you know, it's just, uh, I don't know. I, I really feel like we are still uh, not highly looked upon. You know, they don't want our faces in the front of the news. So it's, it's unfortunate, but it, it almost seems like that's the way the, the world is working. Yeah. Does my, my, cause my case has a lot of points that I think people can touch on whether you're Latina, whether you're the LGBTQ, you know, how I'm keeping my faith, uh, how I kept my faith throughout all this, you know, just so on and so forth. There's just so many things that it can touch upon and yeah, it's, it's just not out there, but, you know, I wish it would be because it should still happen. And, you know, there's still people in prison behind the satanic panic crap. Yeah. You know, it, it's just, it's ridiculous, you know, and, and it was something that was like, where did this, you know, they come up with this, a false yeah. accusation and how far it can go, you know, yeah. and, and what happens to like, you know, I always get the question, well, what happened to the ones that accused you? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And say we did try to bring charges against them. It's only a misdemeanor for that. And then you have to go and prove that it was with malicious intent. 
So, you know, it's just here goes this whole damn process that they really just get a slap on the wrist if you can prove that. You know, so what is the point in spending another minute on that man after yeah. everything that I went through? You know, it's just yeah. it's uh, something that I, I refuse to do. It's horrible. It's it's really sad how somebody can make an accusation and even worse, because it still goes on in heterosexual relationships. Right. When they're fighting over their own children yeah, and how easily a false claim can be made. And here they go, whether they're charged or, you know, what, what convicted in a, in a, in through a court process, what they may lose their job. They're going to have to hire an attorney. They're going to have to lose work to go and, and, you know, participate in all these investigations. So, I mean, there's really some life-changing times with just an accusation. Yeah. It ruins lives. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you've seen it even today. I mean, even people that are accused and it, you know, it doesn't move forward, but yet, well, did they do yeah. it? Oh, I don't want my children around them. Oh, yeah. let's just, you know, yeah. I mean, they're alienated. Right. So, it, yeah. you know, it's horrible. And there's a lot of people who should be accused of sexual assault that aren't. Yeah. Yeah. We were just talking about sexual assault accusations and everything. You had to be on the sex offender registry when you were released. I'm curious about your feelings about having to be on the sex offender registry when you were innocent. How did you feel about having to register as a sex offender in Texas? How was daily life in terms of being on that list? So, yeah, it was bad because I had a... I, I, Man, I had to fall under everything that that sex offenders do, right? I mean, you know, I, it was all public record. My face, my, you know, was all splashed on the internet, you know, all throughout. Uh, neighbors were aware, right? They were made aware. So, yeah, it was like being in a prison without bars is what I say. Because I was under so many provisions of being on parole as a sex offender that, man, I, you know, there was times where like, you should just let me in prison. It was easier, right? Because I, I there was times when, okay, so in prison, you can have visitation with your family members that are like my nephews and nieces, right? And, but of course it'll be behind a glass, but at least I was able to see them and talk to them. Well, when I was out, I couldn't see my own nephews and nieces. It didn't matter if their parents were there. It didn't matter I couldn't even have their parents talk to me about them. This is how serious it was, right? And some people are like, well, how the hell would they know? Well, you're polygraphed. Wow. You know, so everything that I did, I was very mindful of it because here I just spent almost 13 years in prison. The only way out is to continue to follow this conviction that I was under, which sucked. So being on parole as a registered sex offender and registering through the national database, it was hard. And it was, it was times when I was like everything that I fought against, right? Like I didn't want to participate in that sex offender treatment program in prison, all these things. And here I am, I'm a registered sex offender, but I had to look at the different side of it to where if I'm out, I can do more. I can speak more. I can, you know, get, get the, the word out on the case. I can, you know, be helpful to the attorneys if needed and, and whatnot. So 
yeah, I did everything that they wanted me to. I, I took a psychosexual evaluation that was horrible. And, you know, I participated in everything they told me to do. But, you know, by going through that psychosexual evaluation, they said I didn't need therapy. And this is by the state of Texas. This is, you know, them saying that. So, you know what? That just built me up to when I go to court, I have the state of Texas saying she's not capable of this. She doesn't fall under this category. And same thing with their uh, polygrapher. You know, when I had to go in and take my polygraph for the state for being on you know, parole, making sure that I'm doing everything that I should be doing and not doing what I shouldn't be doing, I passed with flying colors. You know, so and that, again, is, you know, the state polygrapher. But, you know, was I scared as hell? Yes, because I didn't know. I didn't. I don't trust them. You know, I didn't trust yeah. them. So, you know, and, and that psychosexual evaluation, you know, you're you're going by a therapist who, you know, says, well, she's normal. She's not normal. Or, you know, she's got, you know, tendencies to do these types of crimes or not. And again, I think back to the pediatrician, Nancy Kellogg, where mm-hmm. she said, quote unquote, this could be satanic related. Like, I, I didn't know. But I was I was scared. But did I do it? Yes. And but yeah, I, I was thinking that this shit might just bite me in the ass. So it was it was it was always like a weight on my shoulders. That's really hard to carry. It's it's almost like going through the whole process of being accused, going to trial, and all these things. And it's just sitting there, like you don't know: Are you going to go to prison? Are you not? Should I plan for the future? Should I not? Should I get all my things? away or you know get them all sorted out so it it was just like you're in a kind of like in limbo and you're always anxious absolutely very stressful very stressful and of the people who um, are wrongfully convicted or exonerated what were I mean you may not know statistics but like what is the most common thing that people are wrongfully convicted for that you've come across or dealt with the innocence project of Texas are you saying like, what, what is it like a misidentification or what, or are you talking about the crimes? Yeah, basically like the, the crime. So what, what are people usually like, what's the most common wrongful conviction? Runs between murder and, and uh, sexual assault. But if you want stats, Zoe, go to the national registry of exonerations. Mm-hmm. It's run through uh, university of Michigan. I want to say it pretty much goes hand in hand, murder or sexual assault. And some of the leading causes to that, misidentification. Right. Yeah. And misidentification in terms of eyewitness testimony. They still rely on that, huh? Yeah. Yeah. I, I wish mean, they wouldn't. You guys got to look up a, a case by Lydell Grant in Harris, Harris County. There was six eyewitness to this particular crime, and yet DNA is what proved his innocence. You have six eyewitnesses. Wow saying that it was him and they were wrong. And he spent 10 years in prison. That's insane. So that's a well-known case for the eyewitness. Doesn't research even show that eyewitness testimony is unreliable? Yeah, now it does. And we're we're still using it for these cases. I don't think it's being, you know, I, I think it's one of those where it's kind of falling to the background now, but yet what you're hearing now, Zoe, is the people that are being released because of that, you know, testimony. But um, so this is a decade 
years later that, you know, these people, now you're hearing about it. But yeah, this was something that was, and that's the thing about, you know, freed people when they're getting out, it's because they've already spent 10, 20, 30 years in prison. And oops, I made a mistake or oops, you know, uh, that was the wrong person or they were misled by a detective or there's so many different issues out there or stories that people can tell you that it's ridiculous. Lydell Grant is black and it seems like almost 90% are men of color or 90% men. That's also interesting to see like the gender dynamics, the racial dynamics, and then sexual um, orientation too, how that plays into it. That's ridiculous. I mean, we're just, we're just a price tag. Honestly, yeah. oh, there's so many, oh my God, this, this is like a completely different conversation. Right. But you know, it's just, yeah, it's, it's horrible. It's horrible. When we go to the, the Innocence Network Conference every year, well, we haven't had it in the last two years because of the pandemic. But when you, when you, uh, you know, there's a, there's a night that we're having a dinner all together and they, they introduce the, the newest, you know, freed people. And then they ask, you know, all the other freed people on stage. And it's just, honestly, it's just, and no offense or anything, but it's just a sea of black. And yeah. when you're on that stage, or, you know, people of color. And, you know, when I'm on that stage, I look out and guess what I see? A sea of white. Yeah. <laughs> it's the weirdest thing. I mean, it, it really is. It's the weirdest thing, but it's the truth. I don't know how to describe that. And it's very unfortunate. It's very unfortunate that it's just people of color. It's just a lot of people of color. You, you don't see very many white free people. Not very many. Yeah, race is an essential part or essential piece of this conversation. Absolutely. Obviously, we talked about eyewitness testimony that can be false, but there's also false confessions are also a thing. And I don't know how common it is. I'm aware of cases where that, you know, did happen, where it was false confessions. I don't know if you've dealt with that at all, or if you've had any clients that have been a victim of that. Not that I can recall, but yeah, a lot, a lot of false confessions. And not only that, but a lot of plea bargains too, right? Because they're, they're, you know, for example, Zoe, I was facing five to 99 years for this case. Okay. And was I fearful? Yes. Hell yes. You know, and they offered us, uh, they offered me a plea bargain of 10 years deferred adjudication, which is basically a probation for 10 years. But I mean, it, it was attractive, right? I mean, it, it's it's attractive to some people. It was attractive to me. But in the end, it was like, I didn't do this. I'm not going to, you know, admit it. And I'm yeah. not going to take something just to cop out. But I want to say that I wouldn't do it to this day. But I don't know how I would feel knowing, being more educated about the system and how it's it's almost against us. Unless you have money to be able to put on a good defense. Or, you know, what have you, but if you are so, if you are one that doesn't have very much money, is not very educated in criminal justice, or knowledgeable, should I say, Uh, not saying that you have to be, you know, schooled in it, but just some kind of knowledge about it. Who knows, you know, so the ones that have done false confessions, you know, or have taken a plea bargain. I can't hold that against them. I can't say, why don't you just stick to your guns? You know, because I don't know what that person was going through, what they were being told, 
how they were being treated or threatened. I don't know that because I will tell you this, that when we were being investigated, I was not filmed. I was not being recorded. So really, they could have done anything to me. Yeah. And no record of it. And guess what? Yeah. They would have looked like the perfect saints until what? Until like George Floyd came out. And now people are like, oh, my God, there's no denying it now. But yet we've known this shit all along. You know, yeah. all the people yeah. that have been going through it. This is what we've been saying. We just haven't been believed because we didn't have a camera right there. I mean, you couldn't deny that, you know, what was done to George Floyd. It's unfortunate that it had to come to that. But, you know, he did not die in vain. He did help. It did help. And it did. It has made some changes. And now people are aware. But it, it's something like we've been saying this all along. We yeah. weren't being heard. Nobody was believing us. So let me ask you a question. Because the system is so rigged, being backed into a corner, do you think you could ever have gotten into a position that, you would have falsely confessed? No. And I say that because I mentioned to you earlier that I had participated with the investigation, uh, the statement, the lineup, uh, the polygraph. Well, the detectives came in after me doing the polygraph and they were saying that I failed it. So it was like they were trying to get me to say something, you know? Right. And I believe that. I thought I failed the polygraph. It's not like they come and tell you or whatever. So I believed I failed the polygraph, right? I, I always thought that until my attorney said, you didn't fail the polygraph. That was just what they told yeah. you. It's inadmissible anyway, but yeah, that's that's what was told to me. So, They'll tell you anything to get, <laughs> to, exactly. to get stuff out of you. Exactly. So you may not and even realize that you're, no. yeah. Yeah, and that's why I say no, because yeah, that was brought up to me that I had failed my polygraph. And how the hell was I supposed to know? You know, you do it and then they, you know, they go out and they, I guess, talk to the detective, Texas come back in and, well, you failed the exam. That you know, expecting like a- me to say something. Shondi, this, this seems like it just like surprises you. Yeah, I mean, this is not surprising to me. <laughs> like you're just surprised, like, oh my God. Yeah. This is what they do. They will do that. So if you're ever arrested, right, and they they will try and get you to say something. They'll try and get you to confess. They'll try, like, they can lie to you. They do not have to tell you the truth. And it's legal. <laughs> I just didn't know about the lying about the polygraph thing, I guess. But that makes sense. If they can lie about one thing, what's going to stop them about lying about no. anything? There's a good episode of Sword and Scale where, I mean, I, I think it might even be called Do Not Talk to Cops. but because he, he talks about a particular case where somebody did all the wrong things and they were innocent and they, they wound up in prison. So that episode was really good because then you get to know, like, they really can say whatever they want. They can do whatever they want almost to get you to divulge information. And that's the way they use it. I'm getting them to talk, trying to find the truth. You know, it's, it's for the safety of the public that I'm trying to get them to say this. But no, you're lying. You know, you're lying, you're trying to trick people and and play with their mind and their head. And now this didn't happen. Not that I'm aware of. Uh, I can't speak for the other three, but I can tell you, I mean, they could have said, well, Cassie said that y'all did this, you know, on this day. They they could have played that game, too. Yep. No, I didn't hear that. But I'm just saying that they they very well could have. That's what happened with what West Memphis three, for sure. Mm -hmm. I mean, Uh that's 100 percent what happened. And they. I don't even know if they were actually exonerated. I know they took an Alfred plea, so I don't 
No, they're I mean, not. Yeah, so I think it's still the Alfred plea. So they basically, what that is, it I says that they're the convicted. Latest. Oh, okay. Yeah, I haven't read anything in, in the. So the latest the is that um, Arkansas got rid of the evidence. So they okay. have no way to get back into court. So now they're suing them. Yeah, that, that's ridiculous. Yeah, like the Alfred plea is like basically they're still convicted, but it's understood that they've professed their their innocence. Yes. So, which is yeah. absurd. Right. And, you know, I, I still talk to Jason and, and he goes through the shit that I was telling you about, that he can't get too many jobs. You know, the, the job that he has is with an organization, you know, uh, that helps people. So, but getting an apartment or anything like that, no. You know, so he, he's got a lot of struggles. Yeah. He deals with a lot, you know. You know, on top of all the stuff that he went through in prison, all the beatings and the harassment and everything else going into prison with that type of crime. The worst thing. The system is so messed up that it's just set to fail when before you're in the system, when you're in the system, and after you leave it, the system. What can you do? That was, I know, that was uh, deep and depressing. I mean, it is. It's sad because it, it's such a huge thing to tackle. So the way that I look at it, uh, to be honest with you, is it's just one thing at a time. I'll do my part and go to down to the Capitol and try to, you know, advocate for changing laws or, or bringing in a bill. You know, when I go to the high schools and universities, what can I do? Well, you know what? Educate yourself on who you guys are putting into office. There's people in Texas on the Court of Criminal Appeals that don't care if you've been wrongfully convicted because you know what? You had a fair trial and that's what you were afforded, right? A fair trial. Yeah. So you got convicted by a jury of your peers and that's it. They don't even want to hear about it. But, you know, you need to educate yourself on who these people are in office, you know, and what they're about. That's something that we can all do, right? Everybody wants to get out there and vote. And I think that's very important. I think that also helps with righting these wrongs by having the right people in office. Anna, what about you? Is there anything that we should have asked you, but we didn't? Right now, I'm just trying to trying to soak all this in. So I can't really say that there's something that stands out that I feel like you haven't covered. What's your favorite ice cream, ice cream flavor? Ice cream? Mm-hmm. What? What? Where is this coming from? <laughs> now, I mean... She said she, I can't, really had she can't think. So I'm like, uh, ice cream. Uh, so that should be easy, Anna. Not, <laughs> it's not easy so, for everybody. Let me tell you, not necessarily, because like in, in prison, when you would go to the store, you were able to buy a, a pint, right? And sometimes you would always, mm-hmm. I would always try the, the newest one, right? Because, but out here, there's so damn many, right? So it's either like <laughs> strawberry or chocolate chip. A right. strawberry chocolate chip is a different one too. I mean, you can mix them together and then you would have, yeah, you'd have them both. I didn't think about that, but <laughs> so ice cream is not something that I really eat a lot, to be honest with you. I'm lactose intolerant. Oh, okay. Hey. Well, that was a bust. Yeah. Take another dessert, Shonda. You, you ruined it now. Dessert? I, okay. Honestly, I really don't like sweets. Okay. See? I'm now, not the only my favorite one. food. You can ask me my favorite food. What's your favorite That's food? Uh, let me see. Cheeseburgers and okay. enchiladas. And I love enchiladas. Okay, 
kind of your no- normal stuff. I'm not really into the fancy smancy stuff, you know? Well, where can, where do you go for a cheeseburger in San Antonio? Well, we really don't go out to San Antonio much because it's like uh, Lucky you. 40 minutes away. <laughs> burger, I'll take water burger any day of the week, right? There's, there's all these different okay. ones, uh, five guys and, you know, McDonald's or Wendy's or whatever, but yeah. Okay. Water burger is the best. Water burger. Okay. Just curious as to who you are as a person. It's <laughs> an, an odd question. It's- <laughs> threw you off right you was you weren't expecting that no i wasn't expecting that no i've never had that one uh thrown at me you know the work that you're doing is you know you said you're hoping to change lives but i think i can say you you are changing lives and just the fact that you're still going out there every single day to tell your story because you don't want another anna vasquez is just so important and really it's it's been an honor Thank you. I appreciate that. It has. I appreciate it, guys. Really. It's really sad, you know? Yeah. It's, It's really sad to know that you know, you can maintain your innocence, but then still be convicted of something that you you just you didn't do. Spend years in prison, years that will have a profound effect on the rest of your life, especially in in Anna's case and every you know everybody else involved. It's sad to know that you've done nothing wrong. You're accused of something that you would never do. You're convicted of something that you would never do. You spend years in prison. You get out. And even though you're exonerated, even though you're freed, it still, it still affects your daily life mentally. Yeah. And she mentioned that, that it affects every part of her life, just as simple as how she communicates with her partner or with people in general to, you know, even being like recognized on the street as someone who was formerly incarcerated. For me, it was hard to take in the fact that, which I knew for some time, being good is not enough, even in these situations. Like she really thought if she was just honest and if she told the truth, it would be fine. Hell, I would have thought the same thing too. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed listening to Anna's story. I'd like to thank Anna for speaking with us about her life, her journey, and the great work she does with the Innocence Project of Texas. And don't forget to check out the award-winning documentary, Southwest of Salem, directed by Deborah Esquenazi. You can find Southwest of Salem on Amazon Prime. Go to our website, check out the show notes. There you can find links to the Innocence Project of Texas. We'll also have the link to the National Registry of Exonerations, a project between the University of California, Irvine, the University of Michigan, and Michigan State University. You can find a link to it in the show notes on our website. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Bound by the Cloak. Don't forget to subscribe, follow, and like us wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.